Blog Talk Radio. Operation. 
if you just take on the team in and of itself, you're taking on debt and, and continuing debt for, for several years down the road. So, Rich, it was your topic leading off Rich Sparago. Go ahead. Well, thanks, Mike. And, you know, it is, it is an issue. You know, the Mets will be sold. I believe we, you know, we talked about this a few podcasts ago where by rule, if a team loses 50, or million, 50 million or more three years in a row, they have to be sold. And the Mets certainly uh, seem to be in that bracket. So it will happen. The question is, you know, to whom, right, and when. And the whole thing with Steve Cohen, it, it just seems like a very natural fit. He's already an 8% owner. Um, obviously, there were, there were some issues at the end, and, you know, maybe it was him. Maybe he's supposed to be a shrewd businessman. Maybe at the end he said, yeah, you know, I know you need to be bailed out, and uh, I'll bail you out. But, by the way, I want SNY, too. You know, and they, um, they balked at that. Who knows? We aren't in the room. We, we don't know what happened. But, but the fact is that um, they will be sold, and, and that is good news for us as Mets fans. You know, if it's Steve Cohen and, uh, you know, and some other people involved in that, I, I maintain my uh, joy at that possibility taking place. We've also recently heard about James Dolan. Um, don't really know where that comes from. I know obviously he's uh, cable vision and the Knicks and all that, but um, why he all of a sudden wants a piece of the Mets, maybe it's the SNY thing, I don't know. But um, but I think, you know, given Dolan's history, I think uh, most Mets fans, I'd be shocked if they would prefer Dolan over Cohen. I know I much prefer Cohen. And, and I just want to say, I, I'll leave it at this and have the other guys comment. I'm very encouraged that it's back. I'm very encouraged that Steve, Steve Cohen is back in the conversation. Maybe something can get done. I do think he'd be great. Uh, you know, he's, not only his money, but his ruthlessness and his wanting to win is exactly what this organization needs. So I think it, it's good news that he's back in the mix. I never thought he was fully out, by the way. I agree with you that uh, Steve Cohen is indeed back in the mix. Uh, Mark, before I hand it to you, I'll just remind everyone that, you know, this isn't the first time James Dolan's name popped up in Mets negotiations. In 1992, uh, uh, I guess you could say Nelson Doubleday caught a real case of the ass with baseball when they ousted Faye Vincent, and he was looking to sell his portion of the team, and his name indeed came up, uh, but never did uh, get that far. So what say you about this? Is um, I gotta tell you, I'm not sure if any of you guys have watched Billions, but uh, <clears throat> I've actually been binge watching uh, quite a few episodes this weekend, uh, just because uh, I think season five is gonna be starting here uh, in about a month or so. I'm trying to get caught up, and um, you know, one of the big things about Stephen Cohen is the guy always gets what he wants. Um, he's ruthless, but he gets what he wants. Um, he's manipulative, again, he gets what he wants, and um. I don't believe for one second that he just is going to let um, the Wilpons or baseball just kind of push him around for one. Two is he just, it just doesn't seem right that he was just so quiet to just kind of take a back seat. Um, the guy has to have something up his sleeves, it feels like. Um, and like what you guys said, he's a natural fit and grew up a Mets fan. And the guy is also, he, he's a shrewd negotiator and he's a shrewd businessman. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, if, if any of us were making a deal for even fractions upon fractions of that price, we would want to not have some idiot like the Wilpons actually affecting the value of our team. Um, and he's been dealing with the Wilpons long enough. I believe it's an 8% minority ownership in the Mets right now. So he knows what they're all about. 
Um, and I'm pretty sure that he understands that he can manipulate and that he can negotiate really well with the Mets. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking all along um, that he's going to be the guy. And, I mean, not for anything, but he also has. I mean, who's going to come along who's going to offer more money to the Wolpons? And at, at some point, it's, you're going to be talking in the $3 billion range. That's kind of, limit, you know, it's kind of limiting, um, you know, how many people and how many groups could actually uh, be part of a uh, ownership takeover like this. And I'm really hoping that it's not a group because we've seen groups in the past um, and groups don't seem to be as good as individuals. Um, so I'm really hoping that Stephen Cohen is going to uh, you know, be buying the Mets. And personally, I think it's going to be no more than by the end of this baseball season that Stephen Cohen will, will be announced as uh, the new owner for the Mets because it can't drag out so long. They're going to have to have some type of resolution. And I mean, even A-Rod and whoever he can kind of, you know, get to the table, maybe J-Lo, like, they don't have the money that Stephen Cohen has, um, and he's going to get what he wants. Uh, Mike, before you say anything, I just wanted to say that uh, I am uh, trying to lift drive my way to buying the Mets right now, so I'll have to chime back in a little bit, but uh, uh, I will catch you guys in a jiffy. Okay, talk to you soon. Uh, very quickly, gentlemen, you know, I'll I'll spin it back around. Same topic. S and Y seems to be the hook. I believe the Will Ponds and, and Mr. Katz own 65% of S and Y, and they're partners mm-hmm. of Comcast. And the other one escapes yeah. me for the moment. I never I never fathomed anyone buying the Mets without S and Y being included in the deal. So I guess my question mm-hmm. is, how hard is it going to be to pry S and Y from Will Pony in hands, Rich? Well, it's negotiation. You know, I think Mark said it before. Steve Cohen is a noted is noted to be a shrewd negotiator. SNY is the it's the thing that the Wilpons want to hold on to, right? Because that's the thing that makes money. The Mets apparently are losing money. So, if you're a shrewd negotiator, why would you take if the guy if the people have two assets, why would you only want the one that doesn't make money? I think that becomes your negotiating chip, right? It's like anything else. It's like buying a house, buying a car. You're going to negotiate things that are that are important to you, and people on the other side are going to value them and, and look at them differently. So, um, I think it's very important. You know, why would a Steve Cohen? Yes, he's competitive. Yes, he might want to be a, a majority owner and all of that. But when the people you're buying from have something that is a money maker, why wouldn't you want that included in the deal? So, I, I think it's going to be probably the point of contention going forward, and. Um, and I do. I think he's going to get what he wants. I think the Wilpons eventually are going to have to give in because they're apparently losing a lot of money with the Mets only, you know, on, on the Mets side of things, and it's not sustainable. Maybe they're being forced by Major League Baseball to sell, and eventually something's going to have to happen. And um, and it might be that they have to give up all, if not some of of SNY. And I think the other More point, though, too, is that who is who is Stephen Cohen negotiating versus? I mean, from all the reports that we're hearing, nobody. So, I mean, what other option is that going to give the Wilpons? And, I mean, not for anything, though, too, but if anything, I think what's going to end up the result is is that either Stephen Cohen's going to get the team for cheaper or he's going to get S&Y and not the five-year nonsense that he was getting before. Um, so, I think ultimately, it's going to work out best for everyone. And I don't really view Dolan as a threat to Steve Cohen, um, just because I think this 
you know, that if Cohen really wants the team, um, then he's going to get the team. The only caveat to that is Dolan would really have kind of a monopoly on the New York viewing market with MSG and with SNY, and that could be appealing with only yes uh, being one that he would still have to acquire. See, I think real quickly, much of this is, is media candy. We only hear about, you know, these big names, Steve Cohen. We only hear about the Dolan. The only ones who can really answer that question, I believe, is Allen and company who are handling the negotiations. If anyone knows who Steve Cohen is bidding against, it's going to be them. And you never hear them, you know, being reported in any article or report, etc. cetera. Uh, there's mm-hmm. things that are disclosed True. and there's things that are not, are not disclosed. And, you know, we're not the recipients of the inside information. And, you know, we can let our imaginations run wild, but, you know, Steve Cohen is the popular name, and it's going to get the click. Uh, I guess we call that clickbait these days and whatnot. So you know, yep. let's put that to rest, and let's get back on the field. Uh, the Grapefruit Fruit League, excuse me, the Grapefruit League season has begun. Rich, the Mets are 0-2-1. Is that correct? That is correct. They um, they lost <laughs> twice yesterday, and they tied today. And I know panic is setting it in Metsville. Um but, you know, it's hard to, to try to see anything after three spring training games. You know, um, Matt gives up a home run today in his second pitch. Okay. Does that mean he's not going to have a great year? No, it doesn't mean that. You know, Stroman uh, gave up a run yesterday in his one inning of work. I think it was 1.2, actually. One and two-thirds, so he gave up a run. So you have Matt's getting dinged for a run in an inning. Stroman getting dinged for a run in an inning and two-thirds. And... Uh, I haven't seen. I don't think these guys have thrown yet. Porcello looked okay yesterday in the inning he threw. Uh, he threw the first inning in, in, in Port St. Lucie against the Marlins, and he looked okay. Uh, but these guys, you know, that who, who cares? The fact that they're healthy and on the mound is really what counts. Um, anything else notable, let me think. Um, not really. You know, I, I can't think of anything that I would say, wow, I noticed this, I noticed that. Um, it's very early. And everything, and, but I'll point to this more than the actual games. I just watched 30, 30 teams in 30 days on MLB Network, and tonight was the Mets. And to a man, the people in the booth who are, so, who are obviously unbiased, MLB Network booth, Mark DeRosa, Viscurgeon, and um, O'Dowd, the, their words were the Mets are stacked. I mean, the Mets are loaded, and they're ready to go. And they say, you know, you look at this team, you've got a very deep starting rotation, you have veteran presence, but you have a very young and, and hungry core. The core of the team is very young. Um, and that they've got the elements of a winning team. And, and when you hear objective people say that, um, that's encouraging. So I'm going to take more from that. And, in fact, I'll leave it at this. My last point here on this one is um, they talked to J.D. Davis today from the dugout. And he talked about how close everybody is on the team. All the young guys like he, Alonzo, you know, these other guys are all very close. And all winter long, they were group texting each other with different stuff. And then the other guys in the booth were saying, you know, that kind of chemistry always bodes well. I think Ronnie said, if you think chemistry doesn't matter, you know, you're full of it. And um, it really does matter. So between the talent, between the chemistry, um, the depth of the starting rotation, all these objective perspectives, you know, for, for whatever you could say on February 23rd, I think all signs look really good. Opening weekend of the, of the Great Food League is in the books. First observations or initial observations, Mark? See, um, 
I heard the same thing, and the only part that I disagree with is – I know that was touched on last week um, in your show, but uh, is, is the starting rotation. Um, I think Zach Wheeler is a big loss as our number two starter, and I think that um, Syndergaard, more than anybody, um, really has to step up and show some resemblance of Thor um, that he was showing it back in 2015 or even 2016. Um, seems like each year he's getting a little progressively less confident uh, and not going after hitters as much. And it looks like he's just trust his stuff you know, like a little bit more than he is, more than he was last year. Um, I think losing Wheeler is what I'm most concerned about uh, because it pushes everyone up. Um, Stroman, I don't know, like the guy's yapping a lot. And last year he really came in and did nothing. Um, he was maybe okay at best. Um, so I'm not really – I haven't really seen anything to make me see that Stroman is great um, or can be a number two and even that great of a number three. Um, and, I mean, Matt's, I mean, he's very inconsistent. Uh, that we've seen throughout his entire career. He goes through these great spurts, and other times he's very pedestrian-like. Um, and quite frankly, um, yeah, I mean, there's some depth in the back end as far as our number five. But, I mean, neither move – um, is something that's exceptionally uh, makes me feel warm and fussy inside, to say the least. Um, you know, just Waka is not – I mean, he's – you know, the Cardinals don't know what they're doing. They wouldn't have let him go if he was that great of a pitcher. And and Porcello, he had the highest ERA out of any starting pitcher in all of baseball last year with a minimum of, I believe, 150 innings. So, I mean, what are we really getting there? in the back end of our rotation. And if someone gets hurt, then we're going to have the, you know, the whole travel cade of, of all these no-name pitchers that nobody wants to see. So, like, I think we're not even great in four and five in our rotation. And if anyone gets hurt, I think that we're going to be totally hosed. So that's the biggest part that I just don't really like. Sure, we have, especially with what we're hearing, and I'm sure we'll touch on it in a little bit, what we're hearing about Cespedes is encouraging, and what we're hearing in the lineup is, I mean, we have a pretty good bench. Um, but, I mean, I'm just really concerned about the rotation and then obviously Diaz and Familia. So, I mean, hopefully one of them will at least turn it around out of Familia and Diaz. Um, so, I'm encouraged. But to say that we're stacked, um, no. Like, I look at the Yankees as being stacked. I don't view us as being stacked. I look at the Dodgers as being stacked. Again, not us. Um, are we on that next level? Sure, we might be. But I think that, um, you know, one or two injuries and – I mean, this season can go south very fast. Yeah. Yep. Talent and stacked are three different things. Uh, so, Rich, I'll just rearrange the question here. Back to the rotation. Is this competition between Waka and Porcello and Mets? Because, A, I don't foresee the Mets going into season with five right-handers. And, you know, Andy Martino, who, by the way, you know, he gets so much abuse on Twitter, I find it so laughable. But he made it seem that the competition, in an article he wrote, uh, made it seem as if the competition is down to Walker and Max, and that Porcello's a lock to the rotation. I don't see it that way. I think Max just needs to get through spring training and, like they say, work on his progression. And, uh, you know, I just have that belief that a left-hander is important just to break up uh, – a run of right hands is rich. 
Yeah, well, you know, traditionally that has been the case, Mike. You know, teams have wanted to have a lefty, and I, and I do agree that it's a very good strategy. And I do think that when they signed Porcello, um, they committed to him to the degree that, that that's possible, that he would be in the rotation or possibly the fifth, the fifth starter after Mass and walk it to the bullpen. So I do think they want to do what you're saying, which is have Mass as a lefty in the, in the rotation and go with Porcello as the five starter, have Waka as your insurance policy, uh, you know, swing man, you know, there in case somebody goes down, you know, which, by the way, I think we talked about this, Last year, the Mets had a freakish season where their official starters started 154 of 162 games. So I don't think, you know, you talk about regression to the mean, it's probably not likely they get the same this year, so they will need a Waka. Uh, but that's probably what will happen. The only thing that that would um, give me pause on that is the Mets have one lefty in the bullpen. They have Justin Wilson. Okay. So – not suggesting I align to this philosophy, but ask yourself this question. Is it better to have that one lefty in the rotation and have that happen once every fifth game, you know, to break up the righties and all of that? Or when you think about the games of those tough divisional games that are going to be coming up, would it be better to have a second lefty in the bullpen? So this way, if Justin Wilson's on fumes and Freddie Freeman's up in a big spot, or Bryce Harper's up in a big spot, you could go to – you have two lefties. You have a match. Um, don't know about that. Not sure. I, I could see logic to both. Um, so, But I do think at the end of the day, Matt's will be in the rotation with the caveat that with only one lefty in the bullpen, I wonder if there's some thought that they're giving to keeping Matt's in the bullpen for that reason. You don't want to see Daniel Zamora again? I mean, come on. I mean, he's great, isn't he? <laughs> And, and we're, I mean, uh, this is what I mean, you know, it's come on. And, you know, these guys, you know, we're done with some of these guys. I mean, I don't want to see some more out there again. And to your point, he's the only other lefty out there. Well, to that point, you know, Rich mentions that Justin Wilson is the only left-hander in the bullpen. What if I throw, yeah. throw Jason Shreve out there? You know, I, I've, been, oh, I've been trying to keep an eye on this guy because he's a, big, he's a left-hander. He's got a big arm. You know, strikeout guy, but he's battling injury, uh, and I'm hoping he proves himself and, and heads north with the club. Can he be the second left-hander out of the bullpen, which frees up Matt to be in starting rotation? So, uh, Mark. Yeah, see, you know, I think that um, you know, that to the point, especially this year with the change of the three batter minimum. Uh, you know, like in the last year, ending an inning, you have to face at least three. Hit, you know, that a pitcher has to face at least three hitters. Um, that makes Mats a lot more valuable in the pen because if you have these teams that are stacking like lefties and whatnot, um, you know, that's when you could see Mats come out of the pen. I think there's more value there. Um, plus, we started to see Mats a little bit more in the bullpen last year, too. He had a couple outings out of the pen around the All-Star break last year. Um, and so, although I think he views himself more as a starter, he seems a little bit more flexible some of the things that you heard, I didn't really like hearing, uh, you know, from, say, like a Michael Waka, where he signed with the Mets because the Mets supposedly promised him a spot in the rotation. And he only came to the Mets because they said he was going to be a starter and he wants to be a starter. doesn't seem like he's really that flexible in his mindset, uh, perhaps to a lesser degree with, you know, with like Rick Porcello. But I think Mets, I think, has a lot of value being that lefty in the bullpen, especially if you see 
either a Waka or a Porcello kind of get hit around a little bit, bring Nats out of the bullpen. So personally, that's the way that I would go, Porcello and Waka as a 4-5, and then, then Matt's hopefully coming in and trying to kind of keep the Mets in some games. Before we move behind the plate, uh, um, Diaz, it's all, the floor is open to you on Diaz. I've added it as you will. Um, Diaz, I think uh, Diaz, I mean, it's going to be tough to be worse than he was last year, right? I mean, it seemed like every time that he came in, you knew what was going to happen, like some preconceived notions. Um, still, I mean, the, you know, the cat's not in the bag if he can handle New York. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was very encouraging um, that he got some, uh, you know, that he got some, got some, um, you know, uh, you know, that he was talking to Pedro Martinez in the off season. If there's ever a guy to really help him out, um, it's, I think definitely Pedro. Pedro was noticing, I think, that his arm slot was a little bit off um, as far as in his delivery. He wasn't repeating his delivery. I think he slid him a little bit across the 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 uh, you know like the rubber. Um, so I think he was messing with him a little bit. And that's one of the things to watch, I think, in spring training is, I mean, Diaz, he seems pretty um, – doesn't seem – he seems very fragile from a confidence perspective. Um, and he kind of seemed like that even the last spring training and early on in the season. Um, so I think it's going to be important for him to get off to a really quick start in spring training, uh, despite the game's not really meaning much. For someone with the season that he had last year, this could be very important. Um, and hopefully um, – I personally, I would like to – I hope that Major League Baseball – that they really kind of messed around a little bit with the baseball to kind of bring it back the way that it was. Because you didn't notice around baseball that um, a lot of these pitchers who uh, really relied on the slider, uh, that they had a tough time even gripping the ball. You also saw the same thing from Noah Syndergaard last year, too, on the Mets. Um, and Diaz really relied on that slider, and last year he was hanging that pitch just right down the pipe, as Keith would say. Um, and you got to make sure that you're kind of – you know, that you're not throwing right down the plate, but really more in the corners and setting up that, you know, the dominating fastball that he has. Um, so I think that's going to be hopefully something that we're going to see is hopefully bring the, the ball back to the way it was. I think it's going to facilitate Diaz getting back to at least part of where he was prior. Because, I mean, just to see a drop-off like that, I think, was very, very um, tough to handle like last year from the dominant closure he was with Seattle, um, you know, to the Mets. So I think that's somewhere kind of in between, um, you know, that Seattle guy and somewhere we were so last year, that's where I think we're going to see Diaz. And that might be good enough to get the Mets to the promise line of where they want to be. Ooh, from your lips to Joan Payson's ears. Rich, your starting catcher uh, is adjusting his style behind the plate. He's dropping to one knee to present a lower target to his pitchers. Uh, how do you feel about that? Well, he's got to do something, Mike, because, you know, looking at his DRS from last year, he was a minus 13. So, and now that that's, you know, obviously overall defense. Now we're talking about working with the pitchers and you know, dropping to a knee, getting a better target. But if you look at the totality of Wilson Ramos's defense, you have a minus 13 DRS. You have clear um, – sentiment from several of the pitchers, you know, no in particular, but they didn't want to throw to him. Um, so he has to do something. You know, if it's providing a lower target, that's great. I'm glad to see that he's trying, you know, to do something different because he can't keep doing what he's doing. You know, they, he, 
he's he's really you know his offensive statistics last year. You know, two eighty eight average is is good, right? Fourteen home runs, fifty two RBIs, but the but the minus thirteen DRS is glaring. The pitch framing is really bad. He's horrible on balls in the dirt. You know, he he's pretty much counteracting those decent offensive statistics. So if he can get better pitch framing, better giving a better target, something like that, it, it, it's going to be required. And I don't want to hear what I'm saying about spring training. First inning of yesterday's game against the Marlins, they stole two bases on him in, in the top of the first. Now, was it Porcello or was it Ramos? Well, he didn't. Ramos didn't look particularly good in either one of them. You know, um, I think one ball, he, he got by him a little bit. He never made a throw. The other one, the throw wasn't good. And um, and, and that just kind of, it's kind of like it conjures up that, that trauma from last year of Ramos not being good behind the plate. So I, I'm all for him doing whatever he possibly can do, you know, pull some different levers or something to try to get better defensively because, yeah, 14 home runs, 288, 52 RBIs, that, that's, Okay, but that's not enough. Those aren't Piazza. He needs Piazza numbers to cover up that defense. Mm-hmm. Mark, you can pick up where Rich left off your ideas for backup. And one question is carrying three catchers folly? Yeah, you know, um, I mean, because I, I can't I agree asked, more. I'm I mean, sorry. Mm-hmm. I asked that question no, because you start Wilson Ramos, he must end the game. You replace him, you only have one more catcher on the roster, and he needs to be managed. They call him the Buffalo for a reason. You know, I mean, you you won't have the opportunity to, or all that often to use him uh, or or substitute him a a late defensive replacement, et cetera. So, you know, at any point during the season, spurt here, spurt there, is three catchers out of the question? No, I think to your point, um, you know, it's it's just tough for me to say yes because I've never really been someone that really would like to carry three catchers. But another one of the changes, in addition to the three batter minimum, is that now there's a 26 roster spot. Um, so I think that might facilitate the ability to actually carry three catchers. Um, I just, I mean, like with Syndergaard, especially on the mound, I mean, look, it has nothing to do with him complaining about Ramos out there catching, it has to do with the fact that he isn't good holding runners on base anyway, and you throw Ramos out there, it just compounds the problem. And it's been very well publicized how much Syndergaard struggles. And you're going to have guys just just jump on the first movement off of Syndergaard. So, yeah, I mean, I personally want to see Rene Rivera out there. I mean, you know what Thomas Nito is? Don't think he's I, – I, I mean, like many, no one thinks he's great offensively. And defensively, I think that, look, I think a lot of the guys seem to be a little bit more comfortable with Rene Rivera. He does get down the lower. I think he's a better arm than Nito. Um, I'd like to see him out there more. Um, but also, but Rivera is somebody who also use to pinch hit, I think, somewhat late in games as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, to your point, I think that counting three catchers is something that they might have to do because, I mean, we don't really need – I mean, it was just crazy to say this, but I don't think we really need – to have another big bat from the catcher perspective. I think that we need more defense from that position because I think that we do have quite a few bats already in the lineup. At some point, I mean, we've ignored defense everywhere throughout the field, and we want everyone to be kind of in different positions in their natural position. At some point, you got to pay attention to defense. Um, and up the middle, I mean, we could talk about this as well, but we're not strong defensively. 
Um, and really, when you're starting to get to the next level, you got to focus on defense. And that's why, um, you know, it's just tough for me to sacrifice defense for an, another bat when we already have, in my opinion, enough bats out there. We need to really focus on making these pitchers better. You're listening to a Metsian podcast this evening with our guest, Mark, also known on Twitter as No More Will Ponds. Let's move the discussion over to Ioannis Cespedes. Man, he's a headliner, isn't he? He says he's on course for opening day. I don't think any of us believe that. Uh, You know, so the floor is open on Cespedes, however, which way you want to deal with it. His media blackout is over. He's talking, but he's taking a rather Mark McGuire-ish approach to it, saying I'm not talking about the past. I'm only here to talk about the season in the future. I find that somewhat funny. Uh, and then we'll get into who realistically is going to be his backup and most likely the opening day left fielder. So you want to assess with this, Rich. Well, can you imagine if they have a healthy UNSS with this in that lineup? I mean, that lineup is pretty good already. You add that bat into it, um, Great. I mean, it would be just great for the Mets. Now, is the likelihood of that happening, probably not really high, you know, because from what Brody said tonight on 30 for 30 and 30, which was just on a few minutes ago, he was saying Cespedes is doing his running progressions. Don't know exactly what those are, but I guess, you know, running maybe 20 yards, 30 yards, whatever it is, you know, trying to get used to running around for balls in the outfield. He's doing his running progressions. Um, and he's hitting living crap out of the ball, from what I understand, you know, in spring training and in batting practice and such, hitting the ball, you know, over over mountains, essentially. So that that's where we are. That's what we're hearing is he's he's mashing the ball, and he's basically trying to get to a point where he could move competently in the outfield. So what does that even mean? Cespedes says he'll be ready by opening day. I think that's just Cespedes talking. Um, but how great, like I said, how great would it be to have that bat in the lineup? Um so what's the answer here? That, that's what I want to talk about. Is the answer that you you keep him around as a guy who could play, you know, three days a week and needs to have a defensive replacement late in games because you want the bat? Okay. Um, is he somebody that potentially should be moved, you know, to an American League team as a DH? That's kind of what I'm hearing. I'm hearing he, he's nothing wrong with his hitting. Uh, he might have some trouble defensively um, and all of that. So, is he is he a better piece to be moved? Um, the, I think the Mets have to give that some serious thought. We talked about this a couple of podcasts ago. He has to be very attractive to a team like the Rays, who, you know, who'd like to add a big bat, of course, anybody would. And he's cheap. You know, he's cheap this year. He's got some incentives in the contract to make him a little, you know, less cheap, so to speak. But he's playing for $6 million. Um, is The Mets have to really think about that. They've got a lot of outfielders already. And if Cespedes is a three-day-a-week outfielder and he has to go out in the seventh for defense, if that's what he's going to be in, in 2020, Mets have to ask themselves a very hard question and say, is he better off as a trade ship to an American League team? Because certainly that's where, in his rehab, that's where it seems like he's lining up right now. So that that's my answer. My answer is, in the National League, does he, with where he is and what, where he's likely to be, this year, does he make sense for the Mets, especially given their glut of outfielders? That's my thought. Cheap. He said he made errors and paid a price. So, you want to assess for this. What say you, Mark? 
Yeah, um, I I agree 100%. Um, I think that really um, his best fit is definitely in the American League. Um, I mean, if he's with us come opening day, I'd probably view him being more um, on the IL to start the season, um, just going through, um, you know, just extended spring training. Um, and then maybe coming up in, like, mid-April, you know, if he's ready. Um, but, I mean, ultimately, yeah, I mean, you know, what he says and what is actually going on I think could be two different things. Um, but what I do know is I think the Mets are going to certainly look to uh, get a couple eyeballs on him during some of these Grapefruit League games to really just kind of see how quick his bat is versus maybe some live Major League pitching instead of just batting practice. Um, you know, despite, you know, being very competitive in the backfield, I saw that the Grom and Cespedes were kind of having a little battle out there, um, you know, into the backfield. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think he's destined for, you know, for the American League. Um, and his contract, you know, being a free agent at the end of the year, yeah, I mean, that draws teams like Tampa Bay in, maybe even Cleveland in, um, maybe work out some sort of deal, maybe even Oakland. So let us assume that he's not the opening day left fielder. Someone needs to be. And I think we all know who that might be. And the other person seems to be left out of any and all plans. We're talking about J.D. Davis and Don Smith. So pick that up, Rich. Well, I I, I don't understand. I don't understand why Dom Smith is still on the team. I, I don't. I mean, and I love Dom Smith. I love his enthusiasm. I love his boyishness, you know, his 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 way about him when he's on the top step of the dugout and you know enticing the fans to get into it i love that he's fantastic the fact is he has no role on this team he doesn't you know alonzo unless alonzo gets hurt and we can't think about stuff like that because that could happen to anybody if alonzo doesn't get hurt alonzo's going to play what 140 games 145 as a starter dom smith is not an outfielder. And on a team that intends to win, on a team that, you know, wants all I'm hearing, a World Series, World Series, World Series, teams like that, they don't have Dom Smith in the outfield because he can't play the position. It's not his fault. He's not an outfielder. Dom Smith is an absolute trade ship. He's somebody with a lot of years of control. He can hit, and you trade him to a team that needs a first baseman. Instead of trying to force this guy, you know, force fit him onto the roster, I, it, I'm, I don't understand why he's still here. And I'm hoping that with Matt Adams, with the signing of Matt Adams, that the plan is ultimately to trade Don Smith and do him a favor. He's a good guy. Let him go somewhere and play every day. And, and Matt Adams is the perfect backup first baseman. You know what, Matt? You're going to play, you're going to start 20 games. And if we need a lefty off the bat with power, you're our guy. Great. You don't do that to Dom Smith. Dom Smith has more value than that, and you could get something back for him, like I said, with his years of team control. I'm not happy about losing the guy, but he doesn't fit here. And he cannot be classified as another outfielder. He simply can't play the positions. Um, and and if, even if he could, he can only play left. It's just it's not a good fit. And, and so um, – your outfield, to answer your original question, Mike, it's probably looking like J.D. Davis, either Nimmo or Marisnik, depending upon the pitcher in Conforto. 
Uh, and if Cespedes is available and he's still on the roster, okay, he slots in somewhere too. But um, you know, but but Dom Smith, I mean, come on, you know, he, he doesn't belong on this roster. Unfortunate. I'm upset too. Uh, I was at the last it game is, of the yeah. season, and he hit that home run, and uh, it was electric. It was a lot of fun. Uh, it's a shame. But, Mark, uh, I'll, I'll ask you this way. I'm going to have a little fun at Mets Daddy's expense. He absolutely detests <laughs> J.D. Davis. So how confident yeah. are you in having him as the full-time left fielder? Hey, I'm confident. I mean, I I have no problem uh, trading Cespedes, but I wouldn't just trade Cespedes for the hell of it. Um, this won't happen, but I think it would be in – and, again, I'm emphasizing this won't happen – but I think it would be in every Mets fan's fantasy to be able to package him with Robinson Cano, just like the Dodgers did in this past offseason with Mookie Betts. Mind you, it would be great in center field for the Mets, uh, you know, with David Price. Um, because, I mean, the reality should be that Nimmo should be playing right, Conforto should be playing left, and we should have a center fielder. Um, that's Agreed. really what should happen. Right. Um, and everyone just playing out of position. Um, and – I mean, McNeil's best position is second base, so he's playing third, of course, because he can't play second. Conforto's best position is in the left, so he's playing right. Nimmo's playing center. I mean, it's just like, can we just put people where they belong? And it just seems like Brody Van Wagen, and this is why, I mean, yeah, like, I mean, who knew that Diaz was going to implode? But, I mean, it, it just seems like that everything he does is just to, like, get a headline over the Yankees. I mean, for goodness sakes. Like, can you just make like, can you just make trades that make sense of where people should play? That's all that I want. And this team is all like just messed up in different positions. Um, you know, defense does mean something, especially when you're trying to build a team around a rotation, which that's been trying to do for the last five, six, seven years. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm comfortable. Back to your point of JV Davis playing left field. But in reality, like, he shouldn't be playing last. Um, he shouldn't be playing third base either. Um, we need guys to be playing where they're at. But on this team, yeah, I mean, J.D. Davis is fine playing left field. Um, I think that um, the more he, – he really didn't have a lot – didn't get a lot of playing time with the Astros. Um, he hasn't really had that many at-bats. And I'm tired of just trading players. Um, and they just blossom with other teams. And I feel like that's what would happen if we traded J.D. Davis. Um, Dominic Smith, not so much. I agree 100% that, yeah, like I feel bad for Dominic Smith because he's not an outfielder and he's not playing first base. And we're just kind of like just have him in the dugout as like a cheerleader here. I mean, it's like there's, there's, no, there's nothing that he – there's nowhere he's going to play. Even if someone gets hurt, he still probably won't play. So, to me, it's like a wasted roster spot. I'd rather have that third catcher on our team than really Dominic Smith at this point. Again, I think that he has some value. Maybe package him with a Cespedes um, to maybe get, like, and maybe like a Ramos and get, like, a real catcher and maybe, like, a real center fielder. That's what I would do if I was Brady Van Wagenham. Let's, let's transition to center field. You guys brought it up. And this is my big attempt to shine some light on Brandon Nimmo. Uh, he's going to be 27 years old in March. He's entering his fifth year. There's health issues that he's contended with. And I'll just say he's a career 
827 OPS. Uh, he's likely our starting center fielder. There's no chance, I don't think, of Jake Marisnik, you know, uh, winning the spot, even though he did hit a home run uh, today. So, uh, Brandon Nimmo, you know, rate him as your starting center fielder, Rich. Uh, certainly not. I'd say he's average. I mean, I'd say of the 30 teams in baseball, um, he might be, you know, somewhere between the 14th and 18th best center fielder. He's certainly not a strength. But uh, but that said, he he claims that his neck is feeling, you know, it's at its best. So he claims he's healthy, which is a good sign, right? Um. And Brandon Nimmo brings a lot of value. You know, he gets on base. He finds a way to get on base. Um, defensively, he's competent in center field. He's not going to win any gold gloves, but he's also not going to embarrass himself. You know, he's competent. Um, so, you know, I agree with what Mark said, though. I really wanted them to go out and get a real center fielder. I thought that was a priority in the offseason. Mike, how many times have you and I, as old-school baseball guys, how many times have you and I in this podcast said you have to be strong up the middle, right? And center field is a very important position. And and they're going at it with, you know, average at best. I'm looking at Nimmo now, looking at his numbers now. So in 2019, he was a minus two DRS in center field, which isn't horrible, you know, which is what I said. Slightly below average center fielder. Okay. Um and in right field, he comes out as a two DRS, and didn't have a lot of time there. And overall, as an outfielder, minus one DRS. So you're looking at a guy that no matter where you put him in the outfield, he hovers around the mean. He hovers around average. Okay. So now the question becomes, so we've established he's not going to win any gold gloves, but he's not going to embarrass himself. Now the question becomes, what does he do offensively? And which is the real Brandon Nimmo? Is the Brandon Nimmo, is it the guy who strikes out all the time and, you know, and, and is frustrating? Or is he the guy who had the 402, I believe, uh, on base percentage in 2018? Which one is it? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Um, there's certainly, at least at this point, unless there's some major spring training trade coming, um, they're certainly going to go with him. You know, if he's part of the platoon and the left-handed hitting part, he's going to play a lot more than Marisnik is. You know, is it the 221 Brandon Nimmo we saw last year or the guy from the previous year with the over 400 on base percentage? I guess we're going to find out. I mean, uh, yeah, that's about all I can say. Yes, we are. Our COO, Sam Maxwell, is back with us. And I'll give you your pick of the litter. Ioannis Cespedes, J.D. Davis, or Brandon Nimmo. The floor is, the floor is yours. Yo, 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 and a bottle of rum. <laughs> That's the way I see it. I uh, I like his motivation. I like uh, the signs. He's looking good. Obviously, it's only batting practice and spring training. He hasn't even gotten in a game yet. Uh, but I like the way he's speaking, at least. And, you know, whether or not the money has anything to do with it, he seems contrite. He seems to understand uh, that he made a mistake. Um, and... You know, I, I, I've never liked the, the narrative that he's only motivated by needing to earn the dollar as opposed to having already earned it. Um, but if that's the incentive, now he wants to show everybody, especially going into a walk year, uh, make some of that incentive money. I mean, we're better. We're definitely a better team than uh, with him. 
you know, even even ne- not necessarily, I guess, at full strength, as long as he can play, he's still Giannis Cespedes, and he's going to give you just some, you know, Bo Jackson-like moments. You know, I, I always thought that, like, he reminded me athletically in many ways just because he's just built like a beast like Bo was. Um, and so I'm I'm – Always in the Yo team, uh, as much as as uh, I'm a big Brandon Nimmo fan, but I think Brandon Nimmo will get his three to five hundred at bats the way he knows how by grinding it uh, as a fourth outfielder as well as off the bench. Hey Sam, we were just lamenting Sam. Dom Smith's. We were just lamenting Dom Smith's future with the New York Mets, and uh, I just reminded everyone that you and I we went to the game, the last game of the season when he hit that home run. Wasn't that fun? Oh yeah, and what's also fun is I now have a uh, a retro uh, T-shirt now that uh, Rick Porcello has has taken 22 away from Smith, and I got that in in 2017 when he was still in the minors. So I'm proud uh, that Dom Smith is making his way through this this franchise, and um, you know it's it's going to be fun to see what he can do this year, and and. You know, it, he seems a perfect complement to this, his, you know, the history that has swept into our uh, our lives at first base. Yeah, all that remains to be seen. So, Mark, I'll spin it back to you. Uh, how do you rate our starting center fielder for the moment, Brandon Nimmo? Well, just before I go into that, um, Sam, um, I, I totally could see the perspective and the narrative between Cespedes and Bo Jackson. Um, from an offense perspective, but I mean, defensively, I mean, Cespedes doesn't even come close to Bo Jackson. I mean, Bo Jackson. Well, but, so but they, out there. They, they both have crazy good arms. Oh, absolutely. No, I 100% agree. I'm thinking from a range perspective, but the two aren't even close. I mean, you used to see Bo Jackson just jumping over fences, robbing these guys of home runs, and just, you know the athletic ability of Bo Jackson. Um, I think is just, and you know, obviously, you know, with playing football too, the guy was a a athletic freak. Cespedes, well, yeah, well, he's his, strong, his, athleticism, he his athleticism is the what killed him uh, from an athletic perspective. Unfortunately, uh, nobody could have been as strong to basically help. I guess see, he ruptured the tendon um, yeah. when when the guy took him down, and uh, you know, he was so strong that he basically. He he basically pulled himself out of of what you know you need to to, to stay together. So um, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, but you know, it's more the heel, though. No, it's more the heel that even when he defected from Cuba, he had problems with his heel. So that's always been Keely's heel, pun intended. Well, yeah. Uh, with I meant Bo Jackson's. Uh, I meant Bo Jackson's career, by the way. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood what you said. No, it's okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, with Brendan Nimmo though, um, you know, like Brendan Nimmo, uh, he's, you know, it's funny cause you started off the show, you know, talking about how, you know, we have all these guys on 30 for 30 talking about how loaded the Mets are, um, watching MLB network right now, the shredder just said that Brendan Nimmo is the ninth best center fielder in baseball. Um, so, I mean, I think you got to take a lot of what you hear and what you see on some of these shows with, with a grain of salt. Um, is Brendan Nimmo maybe in the top half? Yeah, sure. Like, I would think so. Um, 
and totally agree he's not going to kill us defensively, although he's not a natural center fielder. Um, I really love having Nimmo and McNeil on top of the lineup, despite both being lefties, because to me they're just both on-base machines. Um, and that's something that I think we've not really had in the last couple of years. Obviously the big question is, will Brandon Nimmo stay healthy? Um, and at some point, I think that he's realized that, yeah, you want to play tough, you want to play hard, but it's always about playing smart to stay in the field. So I think Brandon Nimmo, he's been quoted a couple of times talking about that uh, late in the season, you know, like last year. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm expecting, again, I'm, I'm being positive here. I'm expecting a, a pretty decent year from Nimmo. Um, hopefully he stays healthy, could play in 130, 140 games. Um, and I see Merznick, you know, being that late – uh, you know that late in the game, you know, defensive player, like similar to to what Juan was, similar to what Juan Lagares was. Gentlemen, I will ask you if you have any outstanding issues that we haven't touched yet. Uh, this is the time before we move on into uh, you know happier days, Mets history. So, Rich, Mark, Sam, anything you want to touch upon? Well, uh, considering we're about to talk about. J-Bay, uh, you know, the happier can be uh, take it with grain of salt. <laughs> I, I have one. I shall touch on one thing. Um, if you guys had a chance to watch any of the games, did you see how svelte Familia looks? Um, yeah. Now, who's to say that his weight was an issue, you know, and why he, he wasn't pitching effectively last year, but – they say he got up to over 270, and his ideal playing weight's, you know, in the mid-230s, and so he's there now. But it was weird looking at him on the mound because he literally looks like, you know, to quote a song, he's half the man he used to be. And um, and so it really, you know, good for him. Who knows what's going to translate to success on the field? Who the heck knows? But I just want to say, you know, from, from Familia's perspective, if that was an issue, he worked hard to try to correct it. And um, and so, you know, so good for him. I just wanted to point that out. Very noticeable. Thin in the face when I saw him on TV. Mark? Yeah, I know the other thing that, that I, um, you know, earlier on in the offseason, I made a prediction, um, but I said it was subject to change. Because the more and more that I'm thinking about the Mets and I'm kind of just giving it thought, the more optimistic that, I, I'm, that I'm being. And I really don't want to get too optimistic because as Mets fans, we know what happens when we get too optimistic. But what I'm optimistic about, I think, more than anything with this team is for the fact that I think this year we're going to have, like, two Andrew Miller-like guys in the bullpen, swing guys that can really come in in a sixth, seventh, or eighth inning to really get us out of trouble, lock out a game um, with, with Dylan Batensis and with Lugo. Um, and it's something that I don't think we've had, like, a combination, the caliber of those two. Um, and that's making me really hopeful. Um, hopefully, you know, like what we talked about, either Familia or Diaz can really be, you know, that ninth inning guy. But to have two guys like those guys setting up, both Familia and Diaz, uh, makes me very hopeful with the season. So, uh, yeah, that's just one thing that I just wanted to add is I think that there's going to be a lot more flexibility. Plus, I mean, Justin Wilson pitched out of his mind in the second half of last year. Um, so I think that uh, – you know, that really bodes well for us this year, um, like out of the pen, especially having guys, all the guys I mentioned, with Wilson and, uh, and Batances and with Lugo, that can really face three batters or more out of bullpen with this new rule. 
think uh, we're all feeling pretty positive about this team so far. Here we are, February. You know, let's uh, ride this wave. So that's it. Let's delve into <laughs> let's delve into a little bit of Mets history. Uh, happy birthday, Ron Hunt, the Mets' first ever All Star. How about that one, Sam? Yeah, Ron Hunt, you know, made his. I believe the uh, All Star was 1965. Am I correct? Oh, I'm sorry, 1964, Shea Stadium's grand uh, grand opening, grand opening season, 1964. Yeah, which was, you know, that one of the first real, uh, you know, I, I I I guess the Mets had a lot of milestone moments because they did have, like early on, I mean, because they did have some of these these uh, Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants coming back and, and hitting some milestones with the Mets. Um, but from the modern standpoint, yeah, I mean, from, from like what they, you know, trying to make milestone moments, uh, you know, in the here and now, um, Ron Hunt was very important to that. And, you know, I, I haven't done enough research about it and, and that's as far as I really know. So I will pass the baton on to, uh, let's start with Rich about Ron Hunt. All I know about Ron Hunt is what everybody else knows, that he um, he got hit by a lot of pitches and uh, got on base a lot. And I've heard him on Talking Baseball Ed Randall as recently as last year. And um, he's like, a, you know, a hard old man. You can see that he was a hard young man, too. You know, he was a guy who, southern guy, who didn't mind getting hit, doing anything possible to get on base. He was an old school baseball guy. So, yeah, that when I think of Ron Hunt, I think of first ever, you know, Mets to start an all-star game. And then also um, the, the getting hit by pitches. So th- that's th- that's what I think. Any uh, anything on Ron Hunt there, Mark? Uh, quite frankly, don't have much to add about Ron Hunt. Um, the biggest memory um, that I have um, early on with the Mets, um, just because I started watching baseball back in like 1985 or so, um, was Roger Craig actually losing 20 games to Mets in '62. Uh, and the reason that I was kind of caught on with that is because I just remember Roger Craig as the uh, manager for the uh, Giants, you know, back in the mid '80s. Um, and that's like one of my first memories. But it has nothing to do with Ron Hunt. But uh, you know, to me, that's about you know as milestoney as I get. Uh, you know, in the '60s with the Mets, as far as you know, early '60s, and uh, you know, with the Mets. Yeah, baby, let's go Mets. All right, number 44, we like to coincide uh, our episode numbers, this one being episode number 44, with the uniform number one by players over the years. Uh, number 44, I'll, as you say, I'll start with the 70s. And I'll try to stick with the more notable names, I guess. In 1970, 1970 Leroy Stanton, Bob Rauch, uh, Bob Myrick, whom I we remember very well. Uh, Andy Hassler, Ray Searidge, Jeff Reardon, there's a topic. Ron Darling wore the number uh, briefly. Tom Pichard, good hitter, I remember, with the White Sox, came to the Mets briefly in 85. David Cohn, Howard Johnson wore it briefly. Uh, pitcher named Tim Burke, I remember. Ryan Thompson yeah, Tim involved Burke. in the David Cohn trade. Yeah. Uh, who else here? Jason Isringhausen, Jay Payton, Jay Bell, Mark Emron, Raskins Millage. Uh, who else? Let's see. Tony Armas. 
for you A's and Red Sox fans out there. As Sam says, Jason Bay. John Buck, who came on like a, wow, a bolt of lightning. Charles Farnsworth. Uh, who else? John Mayberry. Now, it would, it would be appropriate, Rich, to say John Mayberry Jr., right? Renee Rivera and Jason Vargas. A rather large list. So, Sam, I'll let you start with number 44. Well, you got to say that Jason Beck is probably the most infamous number on here, the uh, <clears throat> infamous player on here. Um, and, and, Rich, you know, you and I have discussed over the years that we actually kind of have a, an, a, an affinity for Jason Bay as our favorite worst Met of all time, <laughs> or so, something along those lines. Um, you know, I think that he unfortunately ran into the injury bug, uh, literally and figuratively, with this team. Um, you know, he really gave it his all, uh, trying to do his best, and there was something very admirable about it. And it's unfortunate that his Mets career couldn't, you know, finish out a Hall of Fame one. Um, you know, David Cohn, I think maybe, especially for the how long he wore it and what he achieved under it, um, probably takes the cake here. Uh, there's a lot of fun names. I always think about Eddie Coons, and Eddie Coons is one of those guys that, like, they brought in Sandy Koufax to try to fix. How'd that go? Um John Buck, fun little April. <laughs> uh, Rene Rivera is probably, you know, uh, I think Rene Rivera at this point, considering that Jason Vargas got into the faith of of a uh, a, a news of, of a news reporter, excuse me. <laughs> you know, number forty four really does have a lot of of of. Uh, a little bit, a little bit of infamy behind it. Um, I feel like you know, like there's some famous names from the past that you were talking about, like Jeff Reardon. Jeff Reardon is just one of those Mets names that you know he's not a Hall of Fame caliber guy, but Mets fans, uh, uh, when talking about the '80s and '70s lore, always bring up Jeff Reardon. Um, you know, Jason Isringhausen, really cool that he got to finish his career with the Mets. Uh, he, it, it seems like there's just certain players. You know whether or not they they end up uh, making the most impact with the Mets. They seem to just appreciate their time here, even if they're never going to be uh, figuratively with that plaque on you know in the Hall of Fame. It's it's uh, really interesting that way. Um, you know, like this this team, even like through the Wilpon years, seems to endear to certain players. It's it's really uh it's really interesting. Um I think that's that's about it. You know, when you see some of these these names uh earlier on before the seventies, you know that like like this is a type of list, you guys, that Greg Prince would just slaughter and let us know everything we need to know about number you know, players to wear number forty four in Mets history. Which I I know you got the list of uh, but a couple of questions. I don't believe David Cohn is in the Mets Hall of Fame, is he? And I guess he is not. Question, all right. So the question is, does he belong in the Mets Hall of Fame? And then, of course, go along your own route with these names. You know, Mike, I don't think he was there long enough. I don't think he was in Met long enough to um, 
to earn Hall of Fame status. As I remember, 87, oh, I can look at it right here, 87 was his first year as a Met, and uh, so he has one, two, three, four, five seasons as a Met. I remember he came back in 2003 after he'd been in the booth for a while. He came back with the Mets and he had a few starts. Um, so, you know, n- not a really long career with the Mets, and um, so maybe for that reason, um, I don't put him in the Mets Hall of Fame. And one could argue, and fair enough, that, you know, Gary Carter was a Met for, you know, five or six years, and John Franco the same. But for Cohen doesn't jump, David Cohn doesn't jump out to me as um, someone who should be in the Mets Hall of Fame. He never did. But it's an interesting question. Um, and then as I look at the list here, the first thing that jumps out to me is Lasting's Millage. You know, think about context of Lasting's Millage. We heard about him as a prospect, you know, around 04, 05. He comes up in 06 on an already loaded team. And, you're, you know, you're just sitting back there with your feet up thinking, boy, the Mets are stacked. You know, they, they've got – they're in first place, running away with the division. They've got guys like Lasting Millage who can't even find playing time. And he just never really amounted to much. You know, and then we think about Lasting Millage. We think about that in- incident where he tied the game against the Giants and then he was high-fiving the fans when he went out there for defense. And, uh, you know, the he raised a lot of eyebrows on that. So, you know, Lasting Millage, unfortunately, then he was traded in the Ryan Church deal, um, never became what the Mets wanted him to become and only had a you know very short time with the Mets. I do want to tail on to what Sam said about Jason Bay. Never understood the hate. Never, ever understood it. Um he obviously didn't play up to the contract. That's true. But there's a difference between not playing up to a contract and being hurt. The man was injured. I was at the game in Dodger Stadium when he ran into the wall. Um, and he had concussions. He tried to play through them. And if you're going to boo the guy at that point, come on. Come on. You know, the guy is trying to earn his money. And he was never the same. I mean, he was, his brains were scrambled in that in that process. What do you expect from the guy? So, So Jason Bay was always a guy that I, I, I always rooted for him, always cheered hard for him. Um, what else on this list? Jay Payton's another one who, you know, think about context again. Early 2000, late 90s, you know, Mets are doing well. They're only other time in franchise history. They made the postseason two years in a row, 99-2000. Jason, uh, Jay Payton was the young guy, you know, the future of the Mets and all of that. Never really lived up to expectations. The most important thing I think he did – he had the three-run home run against Mariano Rivera in um, Game 2 of the World Series to bring the Mets to within a run in the ninth inning. But, of course, they couldn't tie it. We all know what happened from there. So, uh, you know, Jay Payton's another one I think about. And then if I had to make one more comment on the list, you know, Ryan Thompson, well, you know, he uh, he's kind of synonymous with David Cohn, right? He came the other way. Um, so Ryan Thompson was another guy. He was, he was a Blue Jays prospect. Mets got him, and eh. You know, he never was what they that they were hoping for him to be. So, and I did not know how I did not remember Howard Johnson wearing forty four at all. So that's news to me when I look at it here in nineteen ninety one. Nor do I. Nineteen ninety one. I don't remember that. Uh, Bob Myrick, if you played for the nineteen seventy six Mets, uh, you qualify as one of my Mets all time greats. <laughs> no matter how good or bad you were, Bob Myrick was a pitcher for the seventy six Mets. I'll never forget him. Or nor will I anybody who played for the Mets that season. Uh, so, Mark, I'll throw it to you. If you want me to recap some of these names again, I'll be more than happy to. But if you got some singled out, the floor is yours. Sure. Um, 
I remember actually Tim Burke uh, because I, you know, he was really good with the Expos, uh, you know, back in the, uh, you know, at the late 80s. I was so excited. Um, I actually, my first call to WFAN was actually the Howie Rose. And he was talking, and I actually proposed a trade to him. I was like maybe like eight years old. How the uh, Mets, you know, they had uh, the Expos had a couple of minor leaguers named Pedro Martinez and Ramon Martinez in their um, in their minor leagues, and I wanted those two guys and Tim Burke, and I wanted to give up like David West and like someone else, and I wanted Tim Burke. I always had this fascination for Tim Burke. I don't know why, um, but I was so annoyed when we acquired him because I thought it was so late in his career, and we were giving up Ron Darling. And it just I always loved Ron Darling just because if a team wins a championship for me, there's so few teams I root for that actually win championships that I just had this, this great love affair with Ron Darling um, as a seven-year-old kid back in 86. Um, and so I always remember Tim Burke and how I used to love him and then hated him when he came to the Mets. It was nothing with the Mets. And then um, another 44, just a, another funny story is I used to live out in Colorado, and I uh, saw – I forgot what year it was. But uh, whenever Kyle Farnsworth was on the Mets, um, I saw him going out with John Roush. It looked like they were going clubbing. Um, and they, you know, they were really cool to me. They were just nice guys. Um, they signed an autograph. Um, and Farnsworth just seemed like pretty cool. Um, so I always liked him. Um, but yeah, I mean, were a couple of the other names? Uh, let me see. Uh, going back somewhat, Tom Petrarch, Ron Darling, Jeff Reardon, uh, Howard Johnson, as we mentioned. Let me see. Jason Isringhausen deserves some more mention. Jay Payton, Jay oh, Bell, Village, yeah. yeah. Tony Armis, like I said, for those A's and yeah. Red Sox fans, Jason Bay, Kyle Farnsworth, and John Mayberry. And uh, the yeah. latest to wear, Jason Vargas. Yeah, I mean, Isringhausen, I mean, that's exactly like what I was just talking about, you know, like before uh, with trading J.D. Davis. Because there's been so many guys that we've traded um, in the past that really, you know, were maybe okay with us. Um, if not good with us, we traded, and, I mean, the rest is history. Jason Isringhausen is definitely on that list. I mean, not having the far, you know, not having the whole hindsight to actually move him to being a closer. And, I mean, how good of a closer was he with with the Cardinals? I mean, forget getting traded for Billy Teller back with the Oakland A's. Um, although, Isinghausen did pitch well with the A's as soon as he went to the A's. But Isinghausen, you know, part of the whole Pulsifer and the Paul Wilson Generation X, um, you, know, you know, these guys were supposed to be the, you know, the next best big thing. Kind of reminds a little bit of, of Harvey and Syndergaard and, the Grom only obviously the Grom's there out much better than any of those names. Um, yeah, I mean, Isringhausen. I mean, the, you know, there were times where he just looked dominant on the mound. Um, you know, and giving him up to the Cardinals, seeing him perform the way they did it with the, or giving up, uh, giving him up to the A's. I mean, and seeing how he performed with the uh, Cardinals. Um, you know, really, I mean, it's kind of very Met-like. Um, so unfortunately. Don't have great memories with Isringhausen just because he turned into such a great player elsewhere. Um, but yeah, so you know, um, you know that's really about it. Uh, you know, with uh, you know the number forty-four is for me. You know, and I would you know, of course, echo the thoughts that we've already talked about. And for all you A's fans out there, you know, I have I have a thing for uh, Tony Armas. I remember him most for playing Billy Ball. 
when Billy Martin managed the A's in the early 80s. Uh, and that's where he really came into his own before moving on. Uh, just general baseball. Otherwise, Mark, I want you, first I want to thank you for joining us this evening on the Mexican Podcast. And uh, I'd like you to uh, take another moment out to, uh, you know, more shameless plugs. We love them on this show. So go ahead. Tell us what you're doing and where we can find it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's always fun being on your show. Um, yeah, is you can find me at No More Wilpons on Twitter, um, as well as uh, we're working towards, um, you know, just having something where fans can go uh, to really vent. Um, and also, when we get enough followers, we're at around well, only around 2,500 followers or so on Twitter. Uh, certainly, I think we need to double that at least to be able to have really any, I mean, at minimum, you know, like really probably even 10,000. But to really be able to organize something, I know that in the past a lot of, um, you know, big fans on Twitter have talked about boycotting, have talked about doing a rally, have talked about all these different things. Um, certainly not here to tell people how to root, how to be fans, uh, anything like that, but more so being able to organize. And the whole premise of Mets Fans United was really being able to have a voice at the seat, at the table, Um with ownership being able to operate more like a fan union, uh, just like overseas with soccer clubs, um, to be able to have the fans unite and to share one voice. Certainly not everyone agrees with everything 100% of the time, but having a majority voice to be able to then cipher that over to a baseball club like they do overseas in Europe, I think is something that is very valuable, especially when you have owners uh, you know, like the Wilpons out there it's funny because every time that I tell people or someone mentions my Twitter handle at No More Wolpons, you always get, kind of get that oof, you know, kind of like reaction. You never, there's never that like, oh wow, like the Wolpons, like they're such great owners. Um, <laughs> so um, you know, the the feeling is, you know, it's echoed all throughout Mets fans, um, you know, what, you know, that are out there. So we all share that similar voice, and that's really why Mets fans one uh, was created on Twitter. So again, you can find me at. No more Wilpons, N O M O R E, Wilpons at Twitter, um, as well as Mets fans United One on Twitter as well. Thank you so much for your time tonight. It's always a pleasure, man. Thank you again. You know what? Protest is as American as baseball, hot dogs, and apple pie. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Let's move into our final word. Rich, we will begin with you. Well, I guess my final word would be it'd be two words, and one of them is a contraction. It would be it's here. You know, uh, baseball is here. We've we've waited four months patiently, and um, and now there are real games happening basically every day. Opening day is 31 days away, um, so it's here. It's happening. Um, it, it's it's just a great feeling. It's great to have our old friend back. You know, we're talking about performance on the field now. Um, there's still stuff to talk about off the field, and, and hopefully some of the stuff we talked about, you know, getting a new owner. Maybe there are some spring moves to be made, but it's here, guys. We're living it. Baseball is being played. Sam, your final word. Is, um, I, you know, I'm very happy baseball is back, but I couldn't get to the same, like, hyper-anticipation Maybe it's because I don't have S&Y anymore. I don't have cables uh, around. Um, 
or a password of some sort. So it's not like I have, you know, the games readily available, but I'm also would be on the road, generally speaking, when they're, they're played. And um, so all of the uh, baseball is here excitement on, on Twitter that maybe I felt in the past, I, I didn't seem to feel it as much this early. Maybe, you know, maybe it's the fact that they're playing games on February, what was this, the 23rd, and it always seemed like, like it was at least closer to the 28th. I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's just that feeling. Maybe I just have too much going on in my head right now. But I'm, I'm going to be excited for opening day. I'm going to be excited to see what this team can do. You know, spring training's a time where everything can go wrong. So maybe, maybe that's why I'm, I'm tepid, if you will. Uh, you know, that's maybe that that single word is the word of the of the night. Off to the left, too, warm and fuzzy. Uh, I'm with you guys. Here we are, February 23rd, and I'm feeling good. And, and I'm feeding off of all your positivity. And, and I'm a happy camper today. You know, guys really, uh, really do set it right for me. You know, sometimes uh, you have a way of changing my mind and swaying my opinions. And tonight you set me in a, in, in a good direction. So, Mark, your final words, sir. My final word is exactly 31 days away. Opening day should be a national holiday. Can't wait for it. So, you know, the spring, summertime ahead. And I think we're going to be right there come August and September. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. That's the way we end this show. And he did it for us. There's nothing left to say but good night. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time this evening. Thank you, Mets fans and baseball fans everywhere. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Good night. Let's go Mets. Good night. Mets.